Indeed, O oh God, we are a people who glory in that cross. We are, uh, we have had our eyes open to see how foolish it was to ever think that we could somehow merit your favor. And so we discovered that there at Calvary was the solution for our sin. That all that, uh, that we had done in the past and in the present and what we will do in the future was bound up and laid upon the Savior who suffered in our stead. My glory, our all, is the cross. We take its shadow and we find it our great resting place. Oh God, might every person in this room understand the significance of those words. Not because they're mine, but because they describe the great work of Jesus Christ for sinners. Father, might this day be a reminder that we are who we are solely because Jesus Christ has lived the life that we should have lived and then died the death that we should have died so that we could be set free from the bondage of sin and death and become sons and daughters of the living God. Everything we do today, Father, might remind us of that. Prepare us for the table. Might we there meet you individually, very personally and intimately, as we remember the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for sinners. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. May I invite your attention to Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13, and we're going to read through verse 41, which is a fairly lengthy passage. Um, So if you'll stay with me, we'll try to read it as quickly as possible. Acts chapter 13, beginning at verse 13. Now, when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. But when they departed from Perga, they came to Antioch in Pisidia and went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them, saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say on. Then Paul stood up and, motioning with his hand, said, Men of Israel... And you who fear God, listen. The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt. And with an uplifted arm, he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. After that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king, so God gave them Saul, a son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise... God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. After John had first preached before his coming, the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel, and as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I am not he. But behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. 
For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when they had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. He was seen for many days by those who came up from, come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declare to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us. Uh, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it also is written in the second psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you, and that he raised him from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also says in another psalm, you will not allow your holy one to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation, by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers, and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore. Lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe. Though one were to declare it to you. The grass withers, the flower fades. But the word of our God, it endures forever. Ladies and gentlemen, what I've just read you is basically a sermon. And I'm supposed to know something about sermons. You know, it's like asking a mathematician about math or a dermatologist about skin. They're supposed to have the answers. I can tell you this, that if uh, we were in a homiletics course in seminary, this is what we would do with it. We would take this sermon and we would analyze it. We would break it down. We would divide it up into its parts and, you know, to the introduction and the outline and the conclusion and all that business. And we would study it, perhaps be tested on it. We'd look at it for a week and perhaps be asked to write a paper on it or whatever. But I didn't think that was going to be something particularly interesting to you. Uh, a different crowd than a seminary homiletics course. So what I sought to do as I studied this passage is, is this. I, I tried to figure out what is it that Paul's audience heard as they sat and listened, uh, as they sat in the synagogue and listened to Paul, what did they hear? What is it that struck them? What is it that grabbed them? What is it that their ears were particularly attuned to listen to or to hear? Now, um, that's not particularly easy to do. I wasn't there. I haven't interviewed any of those. And, and it's somewhat of a conjecture. But I think part of it is uh, what I want to say is not conjecture, and I think you'll see why. To understand what this audience might have heard, you need to know a little bit about the audience. And we do know a little bit, a very little bit. That's all we know. But we know that the audience was in a synagogue. And uh, because we know a little bit about first century Judaism, we know a little bit about that crowd that was listening to this first recorded sermon uh, on the part of the Apostle Paul. We know that Judaism, for instance, stipulated that good people got into heaven and bad people 
didn't. <laughs> they were known uh, as kind of a self-righteous group. Uh, uh, they, were, they, they prided themselves on being self-made men, you know. Uh, whatever needs to be done, then that's what we got to do. You know, a man got to do what a man got to do kind of guys. That was their audience. A bunch of people who were under the impression that uh, if I'm ever going to get right with God, I'm going to have to put my nose to the grindstone and I'm going to have to get out there and perform up to the standards. That's his audience. And so I'm suggesting that that audience perhaps maybe didn't hear all of this sermon like you're not going to hear all of this one. But they may have heard certain parts of it. For instance, they may have heard Paul's great emphasis on what God had done. Did you see it in the text? If you'll notice, uh, beginning at verse 17, he introduces, he he addresses his audience. And then he says, men of Israel, uh, you fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel. And from there on, ladies and gentlemen, this sermon is dominated by what God did. Stay with me real quick. Verse 17, God chose. Verse 17, God exalted. Verse 17, he brought. Verse 18, he put up. Uh, verse 19, he had destroyed. Verse 19, he distributed. Verse 20, he gave them. Verse 21, so God. Verse, verse 22, he had removed. Verse 22, he raised them up. Verse 23, God raised. On and on and on, Paul is emphasizing the divine initiative. He takes their eyes off of whatever it is they had them focused on and fixes them upon all that God has done. Men of Israel, you who fear God, listen. Let me tell you what God did. He did this, 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 and this. The reason I think that this audience heard that is because they weren't used to hearing that kind of emphasis. The emphasis in that kind of religion, ladies and gentlemen, is on somebody else. The emphasis is on what... You're supposed to do. And what you're supposed to not do. It's kind of a, I did this and I didn't do that kind of religion. I've never done any of that and I've always done some of this kind of religion. And so if you're thinking like that and all of a sudden somebody steps in front of you and says, God did this, 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 God did this, 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 this. It it, it kind of sticks in your ear. Wait a minute. Everything that I've been taught has emphasized my role. And this man is preaching, and he's emphasizing God's role. You know, it has a 21st century version. And in our day, the version would go something like this. Good Christian people are people who don't do any of the following. And then the list varies from church to church. You know those good Christian people. You know, you know what's true. God helps those who helps themselves. Or the good Lord uh, is just not uh, fond of that kind of goings on. You see, ladies and gentlemen, in one sense, the audience of the first century doesn't differ much from the audience of the 21st century. Because the religion of of first century Judaism is the religion of 21st century modern man. The whole emphasis is upon What I'm supposed to do and what I'm not supposed to do. The things I'm supposed to do and the things I'm supposed to avoid. And so when somebody steps forward and says, listen up, the God of Israel has done this, 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 this. It's like, wait a minute. That doesn't sound like the normal message I hear all the time. That was one thing that they may have heard. One thing that I'm 
fairly certain that they heard in this sermon is that they heard one of their heroes getting bashed. Um, which hero? David. You know, they knew David. He was one of their heroes. He was the one that they knew that Samuel had described, one of their favorite prophets had described as the man after God's own heart, which is, by the way, picked up and brought into this text. Yeah, he was the good king and the ruler of Israel that set Israel on a path to her golden days. David, our hero, our model, the one we're supposed to emulate. What did you just say about him? Did you notice what he said about him? Do you notice what Paul said about him in verse 36? I think. Yes, for David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep and was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. You know what Paul said? You know what happened to David, y'all? He died, he was buried, and he rotted. If you thought for one minute that David was the standard, I'm telling you, says Paul, I'm telling you wrong. He wasn't the standard. He wasn't the deliverer. And everybody that you, all of you out there who think that David is the one you're supposed to emulate, I'm telling you, says Paul, that's wrong. So as that audience is sitting out there, they're beginning to get it. They're beginning to think, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. He just told me that, that my emphasis about what I'm supposed to do is wrong, and now he's slamming my heroes. And then there's one other thing, ladies and gentlemen, that I guarantee you they heard. I'm absolutely convinced they heard this. But by this time, the blood pressure is beginning to rise. And in the midst of this sermon, of course, in verse 23, he mentions the name Jesus. And the blood pressure goes up a couple of more notches. But here is the point, ladies and gentlemen, that I'm convinced that his whole audience heard. It begins in verse 38 when he says, therefore. He's ready to apply. He's ready to make application for his sermon. And he says, now listen, gentlemen uh, and ladies. Based on what you've just heard, I want you to know something. That the only way that there is going to be any forgiveness for anybody is going to come through this Jesus. If you think that by obedience to the law of Moses, you're going to put yourself in a position where God is going to approve of you. You are wrong. You are wrong. Do you know how much people hate to be told they're wrong? My kids, they hate to be told they're wrong. Um, I hate to be told I'm wrong. People hate to be told they're wrong. But that is essentially what Paul is doing in verses 38 to the end of that sermon. Gentlemen, all of you who occupy the synagogue... All of you religious leaders, all of you people who think that your life is fairly clean, fairly straight, fairly approved, fairly uh, acceptable to God. I'm telling you, if you think for one second that your obedience to the law of Moses is going to make you acceptable to God, you are categorically wrong. Man, I bet you they heard that. Guys, let me read it to you one more time. Look at... um, Verse 38, that through this man is preached to you forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things from which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. He will justify you, but this law of Moses business, this emphasis upon human merit, that is false. That's what this sermon's about, ladies and gentlemen. 
looks into the faces of people who have banked their whole eternities on their obedience to the law of Moses and says, you guys are way off the mark. You know what? I'm looking into the same kind of faces, at least in part. Because there's, there, there are people who are here today who are banking their eternities. You are convinced that the way to get yourself into heaven is to buy some kind of measure of obedience to the law of Moses. And I'm here to tell you, you're wrong. Forgiveness is found in one man. Christ Jesus. Justification. By the way, this is where Paul offers to the church a word that they had never heard before. These people had never heard that word justified. He uses it twice. Jesus had used it once in a parable in Luke 18. But these people hadn't heard that parable. And Paul offers them this grand word, justified. A word which means if you and I ever hope to be right before God, you're going to have to do it through the merit of this man, not your own. I, um, I feel very safe in saying to you that they heard that. Um, but right before he finishes, in verses 40 and 41, he says, Beware. Beware. And then he quotes a verse from Habakkuk chapter 1, as if to say that the judgment that fell on, the hands of, uh, on Israel at the hands of the Chaldeans, that was nothing. That was small potatoes compared to what's going to fall on you. Look at, look at what he says. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. Now, I'm not sure they heard that. I think they heard verses 37, 38, 39, and 37, 38, and 39, but I'm not sure they heard this, this warning because surely they would have done something about it had they heard it. I'm not sure they heard that. And I'm not sure you have. Have you? What did you hear in that little 20-minute ditty? Nothing? Well, a lot of that could be my fault. I didn't exactly make A's in homiletics. But have you ever heard? Have you ever heard what God has done for sinners in Christ? Have you? Because, ladies and gentlemen, once you hear it, you will never quite get over the beauty of what God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus. I want to illustrate that point and finished. If you've got your Bibles, open them with me to the book of Exodus. And um, again, what I'm, I'm simply trying to illustrate, if you've ever heard if the, if the ears of your soul have ever heard what God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus, you'll never quite get over the beauty of it all. This is a story, I think you know the story of Exodus, you know, the children of Israel down there, and, and uh, God raises up Moses to get them out of Egypt, and there's this big clash that goes on between God, as represented in Moses, with God and Pharaoh, rep uh, Pharaoh representing the forces of evil. You could even call him a, a, a Satan figure. So you have this battle. This battle between God and the forces of evil. And this whole story erupts. 
You know the story. And Moses goes in front of Pharaoh and says, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh says, who are you? Get out of here. He says, all right, well, uh, here's what's going to happen. You're going to be you're going to be hit with plague after plague after plague after plague. And boom, here they come. You got flies, you got locusts, you got darkness, you got blood, you got all kinds of things happening. Uh, just devastating the land. And then, uh, you know, one after the other. And every time it happens, Pharaoh will come to Moses and say, Moses, please pray to this God and tell him to lift his hand and I'll let you go. So Moses does that. God lifts his hand and Pharaoh changes his mind. And so we, we've, we've had ten plagues. And then in chapter 11, verse 1, and the Lord said to Moses... I will bring one more plague on Pharaoh and on Egypt. One more. And when that one's done, he's going to let you go. <laughs> There's been ten, but none of the previous ten convinced him. But I got one more. One more plague. And then chapter, uh, he tells him a little bit about it in chapter 11. And then, of course, what is instituted is this marvelous sacrament known as the Passover. You know what happens in the Passover? Look at verse 13 of chapter 12. Now the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over. You know what they're supposed to do? They're supposed to take a, 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 an unblemished lamb and slay it, take its blood, and then take a branch of hyssop, dip it in the, in the basin, and spread it all over the door. And on this night of nights, I'm going to pass through all of Egypt. And every time I see that blood, I'll pass by. But if I don't see it, I'm striking the firstborn. And so God explains everything that's about to happen. And then later in chapter 12, Moses calls all of Israel together, all of the, the elders of Israel, and says, Guys, there's one more plague coming. There's one more that's coming. And this is going to do it. This is going to spring us. It's going to be this. Here's what I want you to do. Get yourself an unblemished lamb. Slay it, collect the blood, and paint your doors with the blood. And when the angel of death passes by, he's going to pass over our houses. And every firstborn in Egypt is going to die. So get ready. Get ready by painting that blood all over your doorpost. Now look, ladies and gentlemen. Look at chapter 12, verse 27. After they had heard everything that Moses had described, here's the sentence. So the people bowed their heads and worshipped. <laughs> of course they did. They were so struck by the profundity and the beauty of what God was about to do for them. That all of their bondage was about to come to an end. And it was going to be, it's going to be produced by the shed blood of a lamb. Is that not exciting and glorious? And they listen to Moses describe it and they say, the only reasonable response, ladies and gentlemen, to a message of what God has done for sinners in Christ Jesus is that you bow your heads and worship. Because the beauty of it is overwhelming. Have you ever heard that? Have you ever heard what God has done for sinners in Christ? Have you? Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't heard it, I want to give you a chance to see it.
Because the New Testament version of what takes place in Exodus chapter 12 is spread right on that table. The New Testament version of the Old Testament Passover is right there. It's the same message, ladies and gentlemen. The message is about the beauty of what God has done for sinners in Christ. And the only reasonable, legitimate response is that we bow and worship. Our Father, I pray that you will take your people and open their eyes so that they might see again how beautiful, how lovely is this message. That the glory and, and excellence of the gospel is portrayed in our very, before our very eyes. Not only has Paul preached it, but now we get to see it portrayed before our very eyes. That you have seen fit to make forgiveness available through this man and no other way. Oh, the foolishness. The foolhardiness, O oh God, of seeking to be forgiven in some other way besides this man Christ Jesus. And so your people gather, we gather around consummate beauty, and our souls are overwhelmed. We bow to worship the God who has saved sinners in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name.